If your litter box could talk, what would it say to you? Good morning, lovely day, isn't it? Or perhaps, what's up with all the clay dust and chemicals you're laying on me and the cat? If that's the case, consider World's Best Cat Litter. It's virtually dust-free, quick clumping, and lasts twice as long as clay litter. And because it's made from corn, it's chemical-free and a naturally safe choice. World's Best Cat Litter, the number one selling natural litter brand for a reason. Good evening, Eugenia. How are you? Good evening, Grace. I'm good. And yourself? Yeah, not too bad. Who and what are we discussing on this week's episode? The case that we are going to be unraveling today was one of the most deadliest mass shooting in New Zealand. We are talking about the Aramoana Massacre perpetrated by David Gray on the 13th of November of 1990. First, I would like to acknowledge our sources for this investigation. Tragedy at Aramoana, a book that was written by Paul Bensonman, a journalist that covered in real life the events at Aramoana, 22 Hours of Terror, written by Bill O'Brien, who was also a witness, a first uh, person witness since he was a policeman. And also the documentary, uh, One Makes a Mass Murder, which we found on YouTube and was very enlightening mm-hmm. about some aspects of the psychology yeah. of the killer. But also we did manage to watch, track down the uh, movie Out of the Blue, which... Mm-hmm was directed by Robert Sarkis and stars the wonderful Carl Urban, which was a fair timeline of the of the event. A lighter, less documentative mm-hmm. insight into the event, I definitely recommend yeah. Out of the Blue. Which was based on the Bill Rosman mm. book, so it's actually quite accurate. There yep. is little dramatization or just enough to... Mm. Let us know some basics about David Gray and what happened mm-hmm. on that very on those twenty-two hours of yeah. terror. David Malcolm Gray was born in Port Chalmers, New Zealand, on November the twentieth of nineteen fifty-six. He was the third and the youngest child of David and Molly Gray. His father, David Senior, served in the army in several countries during World War Two. Molly, also known as Mary, worked as a machinist at the G.H. Ferguson Shirt Factory in Port Chalmers. She was a popular figure in society, while David Gray Sr., like his uh, youngest son, was more of a quiet, introverted figure. They were working class and, like many New Zealanders in the late 1950s, the family could barely afford to own a car. About David's uh, childhood, he was regarded by most of the people as a normal child. Some felt like he was a bit of a sensitive, perhaps a bit vulnerable. Mm -hmm. When he was on primary school, he started to 
He had to use a pair of very thick glasses that earned him a bit of mockery, but there are not accounts that it was really a very severe case. Remember what their cousins, uh, David Gray's cousins, would say that he was a bit of a prankster? Mm-hmm. He would yep. like to... What did he like to do? Well, he would set up um, tripwires that would uh, set off crackers, basically. So people would, you know, walk through the kitchen and, and you know, trip the tripwire, which would then release a mechanism which would set off a, a loud, small cracker small explosion and, you know, scare the, scare the bejesus out of whoever it was. His mother. His mother most of the time. <laughs> most of the time it was mm. his mother, but this wasn't really much more like a maybe a child's mischief. He liked to sneak around a little bit. Yeah. He had an interest on uh, weaponry and warfare in general. But, I mean, I, you can understand with his father being a veteran mm-hmm. of several yes. conflicts that he would have been... Well, he, from all accounts, his father was quite well respected in the community, and if he wanted to emulate his father, you know, looking up to him, then you can yeah. understand how he could idolize that aspect. Yeah, there is no indication of the parents or any in the family being maybe abusive towards him, yeah. which is something that you see in other killers, but not in David. Some people, um, mm. some friends or some relatives, would say that they felt like he was a bit. Boiled yeah, a bit by coddled by his mother, a bit, you know, wrapped in cotton wool. Also because he was a bit sensitive. Mm-hmm. But after leaving school, he began a federated farmer's cadetship, but did not finish. And on December of 1974, uh, David Great's parents took him to the to a poor charmer's doctor, mm-hmm. who referred the then 18-year-old David to... At a, to a psychiatrist at the Daniel Hospital, and they were worried about him. There was never a diagnosis for him, mm-hmm. for, but for what acquaintances said, it seems like he started to be particularly... He was always quiet, but mm-hmm. got like more introverted, spending more time in his room, mm-hmm. reading, um, just showing and general... A- antisocial. Not antisocial, but more unsocial. It's just... I wondered mm. if maybe he had uh, the beginning of a depression because he seemed to be an interest mm. by anything. Yeah. Like, didn't have, like, initiative mm. to, well... Well, to go out and, you know, go out and socialise. Go on and socialise. Join a sports team or, you know, mm-hmm. all the things young people even today are sort of, to a degree, expected to do. Not so much, I guess, but I think back then especially, everyone, you know, out of a lot of the community would either join a local cricket team or a local rugby team mm-hmm. or, you know, even, yeah. you know, go out hunting, which is very, very popular in New Zealand. Exactly. Um, so he, he never really joined any of the social activities that a lot of people would expect. His job as a trainee farm worker was not succeeding. Mm-hmm. His bosses would complain that David Gray uh, kept his room and his own appearance and interest and anxiety and was also a chain smoker. And now I'm quoting from Tragedy at Aramoana. The psychiatrist notes say that David Gray had had trouble blending into the three fam- farming families he had worked with. He was also experiencing difficulty with his cadetship correspondences courses and in sleeping and eating. He suffered from loss of appetite, fatigue, 
and apathy. In between 1979 and 1983, David Gray worked at the railways department at Dunedin, and he struck uh, upon one very meaningful friendship that was with Paul Mer. David had a great sense of humor. It was a bizarre, witty, Monty Python type of humor. David was kind of known for being a prankster and being a bit of a joker with his other workmates. But they would also tell that sometimes he would have little quarrels or arm-blasting matches. And sometimes he would take uh, jokes a bit to the heart. He he was told that he couldn't take a joke, even Mm -hmm. though he had quite a quite a good humor but he would mm-hmm. always um they had a small fits of rage but late afterwards he would apologize yeah and he was in particular sensitive about the fact that he was becoming bold mm. at a very early age yeah which um you know which led to one of his fairly well-known uh, i guess trademarks or hallmarks mm-hmm. uh, of him always wearing a coming to wear a beanie but- a balaclava. A balaclava, sorry. A black balaclava. Was it black or khaki? I think it was black. black. But it would look like a beanie because he would roll it exactly. up his head. Yep, so he'd roll it up and it was always, uh, you yeah, know, it... Paul Med would say that it was some sort of protective item that he couldn't let go. But he, yeah, I think he was just a very sensitive young man, but also needed that, that shell of bravado that he wouldn't take a joke. And, you know, that was probably probably a defense mechanism to, even though he was cold and sensitive, he didn't Mm. want to have that sensitive side exposed exposed or hurt or damaged, and to the point where he would apologize for it afterwards after lashing out. But there was something else. What was his other, he had a passion for a certain type of literature? Again, which really builds on his long-term interest is his love of military and military history. Uh, he collected numerous secondhand books mm-hmm. on well, what started focusing on World War II and mm-hmm. in particular the German army and the rise of the Nazi party and its effects on the population of Germany. This is an aspect that is very interesting about him because uh, on one hand, Paul Med would say um, that Grey would also uh, be very interesting there, also living in the wildlife, like mm. being a bit of a survivalist. Mm. He was interested in that sort of literature and he talked with admiration about the Viet Cong. It was one day that Paul and his wife, Lois Med, spent a weekend at Davis Grey at his Aramoana crib that I feel Paul really... Got a feeling of how um, how cynical and how uh, dark mm. his David Gray's feelings towards uh, society were becoming. Paul would say that first off, it, it was the crib, living in the crib was extremely depressing. Mm. And there is footage of how it looked before yeah. or after the massacre, to be precise. And it was extremely unkept. Well, David himself mm. was very unkept. He was extremely skinny. He didn't seem to eat a lot. And Paul would say that um, even though David invited him and Mm. his friend's wife to spend the night, the only dinner he could offer to them was a bunch of potatoes. He toasted to the fire and 
yeah. cooked. So he, he was, yeah, I mean, he was living a very reclusive... Scarce. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pulled. Uh, um, what am I trying to say? Uh, you know, it's clear he, he wasn't wealthy, but it really seemed like he was living under his own means. Um, mm. He would also use uh, mostly thrift shop uh, clothes that look military mm. or that they were military. Yeah. This I I keep inter I keep uh, interpreting this lack of um, of keeping himself and this even the lack of appetite mm-hmm. as well. It's actually is a depression. Yeah, a- absolute. Also, I think his romanticization mm-hmm. of all you know of his austerity, mm-hmm. uh, which you know factored into his the way is is his crib was kept and also the way he lived was a certain certain grim outlook and pride at yeah. the fact that he could you know quote unquote live off nothing and uh, survive off of you know his wits and the surrounding um you know environment when he would uh you know catch fish or um you know any rabbits or anything he could do to live off the you know the, the local mm-hmm. environment when some many other people in similar situations were doing it you know doing it tough as they say but at the same time were eking out a decent quality of life and still you know surviving on on as much as he was on unemployment benefits he definitely yeah. wasn't the only one and yeah. while it is close to the margins, it uh, yeah. it's still perfectly able to, to live a you know, a good life off that off of that. Yeah, he started picking uh, the unemployment once he was was after he was I think he was actually fired from the railroad on mm. nineteen eighty three. Mm. So until nineteen nineteen, which is the year of the massacre, he had been living seven years on unemployment, yeah. basically. Mm. And one um, from Bill Brosnan's book, Aramoana, the Mets stayed for two nights with Gray, but found his lifestyle too basic. The grief was Spartan, food was scarce, and the couple found it uncomfortable and not as tidy and clean as they would want. Hmm. The experience was rather unpleasant, and Gray's cynicism and bitterness towards society were too much to take. Hmm. He believed that other races were going to take the country over, an Asian invasion. He believed it was inevitable and was scared of losing what he had. But also thank you of having a kind of scarce uh, way of life. He, in 1982... Hmm. uh, David managed to do a bit of a tour. He went on a three-month trip, basically mm. going around the different countries in which his father had served. He arrived, he left New Zealand in early January 1992. He arrived in Tokyo on the 10th of January. And after a week touring Japan, he flew into London's airport. He visited Holland, France, went through the Alps between France and Italy into Germany, and then spent a week in Greece, followed by almost a month in Spain, Egypt, and Morocco, 
before returning through France and Holland to England. Mm. And afterwards, he came back. He had a he had a rough time being uh, a backpacker, mm. so to speak. What what were his issues? Um, what were his issues? What were his issues? Um, it's never too clear. There there is an incident in which uh, he was uh, he was given a full body search by the police mm-hmm. in Germany. That's right, and he felt. Well, obviously, the extreme discomfort of being physically searched, but mm-hmm. also, I think for him, it was the indignity a a white man, a white man, basically, a white New Zealand man, would be subjected to a search of that nature. When a, you know, he obviously never considered himself. Um, part of a, a minority or a section of society that would be worthy of, or not worthy, would be subjected to mm-hmm. a full body search. And so the indignity and the offence that caused him obviously yeah, really affected him and I think definitely stayed with him and added to the, to the weight that, um, you know, uh, well, added to the, to the list of trauma, I don't, know, I don't know if that's the right word, but and he had like a, uh, he was having a hard time uh, hanging around strangers because he went by himself and he mm. would stay at hotels. He he was regarded also as having like a very conservative. Uh, mm. Well, yeah, <laughs> we we already insinuated that he is racist, but we always said that he is racist for his uh, his mm-hmm. Asian invasion. Trope, which is one of the favorite tropes of mm. the far right, you know, the demonizing of, of foreigners Mm-mm. by white people, basically. While on his trip through Europe in 1982, uh, David Gray also sent a postcard to Paul and Lois Met, his friends, mm-hmm. and told him that he had been locked up in a train station at night in Paris by the police, so a few misadventures. So before returning to Paul Chalmers after doing his uh, three-month trip, mm. Ray tried living in the North Island and he spent six months in Wellington and two months of the summer of uh, 1982 in Auckland. From Paul Bensman book, mm. a Wellington flatmate of Gray's said Gray seemed quite confused at times and lived in a fantasy world. He actually spoke about having served time for going on a rampage with a gun in Dunedin. He eventually told me it was untrue. This is the flatmate. Mm-hmm. He once sat in the living room and pointed his loaded rifle at my head and said, I could kill you now and nothing would happen, the flatmate recalled. Gray also claimed to be a burglar and said he dreamed of being a mercenary. In spite of the fan- fantasies, Gray seemed a relatively ordinary person, the flatmate said with a sense of humor, but he was unusually sensitive and was easily hurt. He could he would react badly if criticized. He once punched a guest in the Wellington flat when the visitor produced some cannabis. I feel he was trying to compensate this uh, sensitiveness mm. by these well, fantasies of being a mercenary or some sort of warrior. Yeah, a very hyper-masculine, mm-hmm. hyper-macho... Uh, yeah, a persona. Yeah. To yeah, act as a yeah, like I said, a shell of bravado that you know would hopefully 
uh, leave his his soft, sensitive side unavailable for uh, you know people to pick on. But also his sense of social right and righteousness, I guess you could say, in yeah. attacking person who pulled out a joint, which uh, is not uncommon in uh, New Zealand. And from what I understand, yeah. there's always been a, a fairly relaxed attitude towards uh, smoking marijuana in New Zealand. Yeah. And... He wasn't having it. No, he saw it as very, un- you know, obviously unfit and improper to the point where he attacked his housemate's friend. And I think that, you know, that sort of also feeds back into the, I guess, slightly conservative, but, um, you know, mindset of him being strip searched mm-hmm. in Germany and he was a, a right, proper, right and proper mm-hmm. uh, white middle class Commonwealth uh, yeah. citizen who shouldn't have to under, undergo the un, yeah undergo Being these as a criminal. yeah undergo these indignities as you know that's why his dad fought in the war to you know to mm. uh, protect that way of life I guess you could say yeah so I felt that probably he felt had a bit of an indictment mm-hmm. deserved to be treated yeah. differently. In mm. which case, and speaking of the father, because it's a very important piece in the puzzle of this crime, mm. I don't think it's really so mysterious. Well, I mean, he definitely revered his parents. I mean, mm. his his father was, you know, a war veteran, yeah. who, which was important to David Gray. Mm. And, you know, later on, he lost his mother, which, according to his sister was absolutely devastating because she, you know, according to reports, she was very strong and, um, yeah. well, loving, but she was a very strong and um, caring woman who David, you know, she protected David and... Bet MGM is pitching baseball fans a chance to swing for the fences. Register using code CHAMPION200 and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 money line wager on any Major League Baseball game and either team hits a home run, regardless of your bet's outcome. Enjoy baseball like never before with Bet MGM's daily promotions at your fingertips all season long. Download the app or go to betmgm.com and use code CHAMPION200 to win $200 when you bet $10 on an MLB game and either team hits a home run. Sign up today and find out why nothing beats a win at the King of Sportsbooks. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500. Hi, how can I help you today? As a McDonald's employee, you say those words quite often. But how about when you need help, like consulting a doctor? Hi, how can I help you today? When you work for a McDonald's restaurant, we take care of you like family. With free virtual doctor's visits, including getting prescriptions and refills for you and everyone in your family. Apply today at careers.mcdonalds.com and find out more. The benefits described herein are only available at participating restaurants. David absolutely, you know, adored her. And as, as, as his sister said, it really, really affected him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, really 
even though he was already, de- you know, already depressed and withdrawing from society, he, yeah, this really pushed him even further in that direction. Yes. So David Gray Sr. died on 1978 and his mother in 1985. And it was um, devastating uh, because it was also... It was really quick. Uh, initially, she had been having some uh, memory issues, mm. being a bit, uh, you know, confused. Mm. Like, uh, at the beginning, the doctors had said that she had Alzheimer's. Within a couple of months, she was being nursed mm. by David and one of her sisters, mm. that is uh, Aunt Jean. But after several months, she was admitted at the Wakari Hospital in which mm. doctors communicated to the family that she had actually brain tumor and would soon die. On January 1985 is when Molly died. This is the most, I would say, the most important turning point mm. into the life of David, whom at this point was already unemployed. Yeah, I feel that they were supportive, but I think uh, he he never he never grieved. Uh, no. properly in a healthy manner. He was also kind of... Depending on which source you go with, it, it does sound like he was, you know, okay with children. And he definitely never injured or you know, molested any children. Uh, but it's, it, it's also noted that he was very kind and fond of animals. Yes. So as, as a, you know, on the McDonald triad of serial killers and people who commit heinous crimes against other humans he you know that's one of the big warning uh factors and he clearly doesn't uh go towards that um that aspect having lost his parents being unemployed and in there are no recollections of Mm. him trying to find a, a way to support himself he had no option but to move into the small crib in Aramoana mm-hmm. which, which he yeah. would rename Hilskaf the high seat in the palace of Odin the legendary Norse god of war mm-hmm. that's how he called his crib and one of his neighbors Julie Holden she was intrigued by the new name and she would after said that she would ask David what it meant mm-hmm. he answered you'll find out one day mm-hmm. when he was moving out to Aramoana after the death of Molly he had a um, an incident that was never reported, uh, in which David Gray uh, suddenly produced a flick knife and threatened to stab his older brother. He could have easily stabbed me, but he didn't. I got the knife out of him, but was surprised of how strong he was. This apparently completely uncalled attack went under the radar for whatever yeah. reason. Well, because it was his brother. It was his brother and... And they were probably trying to protect him. The death of his mother and him moving to Aramona is a tipping point. But he had some friends. Mm. He had a friend, Nikki Boone, with whom uh, they would spend many hours at night uh, discussing about, you know what? Mm. Occultism. 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 Mm. But anyhow, Nikki Nikki Boone would hang around with him, but for personal reasons, she wasn't interested in having anything with him. Uh, She would say in Aramoana, Bill O'Brien's book, that uh, she was actually coming out of a relationship, Mm. and she made it clear to 
David that it wasn't personal, but she was happy to be friends. And he didn't seem... He didn't seem to be very affected, but he made an offhand comment about just another rejection. Bill Brosnan, the owner of Galaxy Books, would also say that David, he wasn't interested in having a partner, but mainly because he didn't like what Bill calls modern women, mm. quote-unquote, that David felt like modern women were too aggressive or independent He, well, yeah, he wanted a, yeah, the old-fashioned uh, housewife, which, again, as, you know, we're seeing now with a lot of, um, I guess you could say the incel culture, uh, is, a, is a, common, a common trait of entitlement. Young men who see themselves as upstanding citizens, who have trouble dating and finding, you know, finding love, uh, believe it's their right to have a woman you know, nurture them and, and give them affection as well as um, keeping their house and, and probably raising children eventually, but they feel that they're entitled and owed this somehow. Like it's a natural order. Yeah. Which is and basic misogyny. Yeah. <laughs> very, but, yeah absolutely. very brutal misogyny. And to believe that there are gender roles, such as being a housewife or mm -hmm. even being a strongman. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, you know, that sort of conservative mentality um, leads to blaming the rise of feminism and, you know, the, the whole idea of the modern woman being uppity and, uh, and too picky for, you know, for men who just want a, you know... Uh, quote-unquote, you know, traditional traditional relationship. One of his close uh, friends or acquaintance was actually one of his family members, uh, Jim Granger, whom David would call a crowbar because he always kept a crowbar on the side of his car and would constantly make a joke about uh, bashing David in the head with the crowbar, which they found uh, hilarious. What I'm interested is in this letter that it's on Bill O'Ryan book. That is a letter sent by David Gray to Jim the 21st of April of 1987. What I'm really interested is on what David Gray wrote on the back of the envelope as his return address. Sender, Rudolf Hess. Care of, Maximum Security Bunker, B12, Berlin. Rhetorical question. Whom is this Rudolf Hess <laughs> that uh, David seemed to be identifying in some way or mm. trying to make a joke with this persona? Well, one of the highest ranking Nazi military mm. officers during World War II and a, yeah, a close associate of Adolf Hitler himself. I really wonder what Jim, his family, thought of this. I, I wonder if they innocently ignore whom Rudolf Hess was, which would be very curious since, well, you know, uh, New Zealand actually took part in Second World War, or if he thought it was uh, mm. some sort of uh, dark humor. Mm. You know, there is, or I believe, mm. that you can do that a lot of uh, legit uh, social criticism with humor and irony and satire especially but there is always someone whom tries to masquerade mm -hmm. their hatred 
or the bigotry as quote-unquote humor. Mm. I wonder if this was the case with David Gray. Yeah. But, I mean, by that stage, I think maybe his family and a lot of family friends may have, I hate to use the term, written him off as just being really, really weird. As his eccentricities. Yes. Yeah, which is a polite way of saying it. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, the the fact that he lived you know his his bunker so to speak his mm-hmm. his crib was the family holiday home so i think they were happy to have him safe i think that loneliness that he imposed into himself and being unemployed mm. and probably being depressed and untreated just make him more and more isolated within mm. the years but got more and more into the into the culture of far guess, right, the far right, and mm-hmm. uh, which I think leads you know a lot of young men who feel isolated and want that you know the, the want to be the hero in their own life story, and part of that is to be a great warrior, and that leads to an interest in military mm-hmm. and well military culture, mercenary culture, sol- you know soldiering culture, mm-hmm. and. You know, unfortunately, in that a lot of the time that leads to some pretty extreme ideologies, and it appears in this case is what happened with David. Quoting from Tragedy at Aramoana, he was especially interested in thriller paperbacks, travel books, self-sufficiency manuals, whole earth catalogues, war stories, military magazines such as Soldier of Fortune. One writer that he enjoyed was Ayn Rand, who wrote Atoll's Shrug and other titles on right-wing capitalism. In his last year, or his last year, he ordered and imported some very antisocial books from the United States, such as The Anarchist Arsenal by David Harbour, about improvised bombs and incendiary devices, Life After Doomsday by Bruce Clayton, on how to survive post-nuclear war anarchy, including How to Fight Off Neighbors, and The Poor Man's James Bond by Kurt Saxon, about methods of harassing, injuring, or killing opponents. Um, Some sources said that he was a pen friend of this guy, Kurt Saxon, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't really like that. He wrote a fun letter in which he would um, praise this author, Mm-hmm. About and he would regard it as as a very brave and intellectual man that was saying uh, saying uncom- truths that yeah uncomfortable truths yeah classic mm. Cla- classic defense mechanism of people that are into the far right and are mm-hmm. uh, just creating uh, content that it's hateful and mm-hmm. they try to defend themselves by saying that they are just brave and they are just being se- mm. censored. Hmm. So if we look at Kurt Saxon in internet, the first definition is in Wikipedia. Kurt Saxon is an American neo-Nazi writer and radio host, surveillance and the author of Poor Man James Bond, a series of books on improvised weapons and ammunition. What about the Soldier of Fortune? Well, Soldier of Fortune magazine, uh, which had been going since the mid-70s, was effectively an, an adult version of, uh, you know, boys' own adventures, where these reporters and uh, where reporters would write stories on 
major conflicts that were occurring uh, and minor conflicts, or soldiers and mercenaries themselves would send in letters documenting uh, their daily life and uh, some of the missions that they had. And yeah, these were published as sort of adve- like an adventure journal, but also it served as a, a, a bulletin board, I guess you could say, of mercenary companies that were uh, recruiting uh, armed forces uh, that were recruiting as well and would were more than happy to take in uh, foreign-trained or vaguely trained uh, enthusiastic uh, people. They even have a webpage nowadays. Yeah. Had some articles yeah. about uh, justifying the intervention of United States in several Latin American countries mm. as, you know, the quote-unquote war on communism or war on drugs. And I don't know what it says about the current invasion of Ukraine, but I have a feeling this might be a pro-Russian mm. <laughs> or a pro-imperialist mm. point of view. As 1919 moved on, Gray continues his path toward destruction. His reading material was now bizarre. Titles taken from the library in the last few months included Killer, Military, Small Arms of the War, The Dispossessed Majority, interesting title, Mm. The SKS Assault Rifle, Home Gunsmithing, Fighters, Modern Fighters, and Attack Craft. He was impressed by the writings of Kurt Saxon and wrote to him saying... I have decided to risk more money on your publications, which I enjoy. And then went on to say what he thought of the poor man's James Bond. Quote, your writing caused much provoking thought, wrote David Gray. Somewhat a rarity in this day and age, and you actually appeared on my television screen in a documentary on survival. David Gray's closest neighbour, or next-door neighbour, was a man named Gary Holden. Gary Holden. Yes. Who had uh, two daughters, Chiquita Mm -hmm. and Jasmine, whom he had with uh, Julie Holden, the Mm -hmm. neighbour that we mentioned before. Gary was very well appreciated in Mm. the community. He had been for many years with his partner, Julie Holden, until he strike a friendship that later on ended up being a romantic relationship with another neighbor of uh, Aramoana, Julianne Bryson, who had an adopted daughter, Riva. They were really close, mm. uh, close at some extent with uh, with Debbie Gray. He, he got along with the children mm. at some point yep. before the last years. Yep. And David was also known for having a metal detector, he would use on the beaches of Aramoana and would very frequently help children or other neighbors mm. locate lost uh, objects. Yeah. I mean, just just to state that he wasn't a complete outcast. No, when he moved on, yeah. and was uh, it yeah a complete shut in? And he wasn't stage. completely rejected by everybody. Mm. But Gary um, was into more naturist medicine, and Julian Bryson was the leader of the Spiritist. Mm-hmm. Society of uh, Dunedin, actually, which is kind of funny. First off, it seemed like uh, David was very upset that Gary had split with his uh, yeah. partner yeah. and yeah. moving with another woman and adopt mm. again. I think this is a, a sign of his 
conservative yeah, yeah. mindset. The tipping point of their relationship, or at least for Grey, was mm. an argument about a dog, mm. Kento, who was Holden's Alsatian German Shepherd. Mm -hmm. <laughs> What are the odds <laughs> whom he, David Grey, was particularly attached mm. to and would, and would uh, with the permission of uh, Gary Holden, he would take the dog for hours. On walks for the beach, but uh, what happened with poor Kenta? One of the uh, issues that, well, the, the one of the major issues was that Kento would run off and chase sheep and attack them, which, uh, you know, in a particularly rural setting and one that has a very high population of sheep farmers that was a major problem. So unfortunately, Gary had to uh, put Kento down. And David took it... Oh, he, he was blaming Gary. He mm, for not disciplining and training Kento. Training the animal. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And it was also said that uh, Gary had a hatch of rabbits that mm. he didn't take care of them for whatever reason. And on one occasion, David set them free. People no. regarded Gary as a good man, a bit of a macho. Yeah. <laughs> like he would scream friendly abuse to other people or was a bit of a mm. joker himself. Um, you know, he turned into more naturist medicine when he started having the symptoms of uh, chronic fatigue, mm. also known as Tapanui flu, It's like a post-viral disease. It You know whom else thought that had Tapanui flu? Who is that? His neighbor, David Gray. David Gray. And yes. at some extent, he, David told some acquaintance or, that he suspected Gary of giving him the Tapanui flu, which mm. I, think, I think is not really contagious. That is not something that happens. Mm. On one occasion, uh, David had to be saved by his neighbors because he was burning some trash in the backyard and he fall asleep to have a nap but then he wouldn't he was he wasn't physically capable of getting up uh, because of his fatigue and he had to be rescued i think this is again maybe his depression symptoms mm -hmm. that he wouldn't admit to be suffering and he put the blame on his neighbor mm. gary yeah and there was one well one of the final i guess straws which really pushed uh, Gray over the line and particularly isolated him from the community. Because he already had ideas of people not liking him or mm. being, people being behind him. Almost every one of his acquaintances, Jim, Bill Brosnan, Paul Med and family members would say that he was growing paranoid. Mm. He seemed to have some ideations of people talking behind his back. And at some point, he almost... Uh, there are many. Mm. Yeah, you, you can go go say the one that you're saying, because well, that is very key. In the community, there was a incident where some uh, women's underwear, some knickers, were stolen off of a washing line. Mm -hmm. And there was n absolutely no... There were also sightings of a peeping Tom yep. doing its... Mm. Yeah, just a spine. shadowy figure sneaking around. Mm -hmm. Absolutely no way. 
uh, provable or, you know, no evidence was provided that it actually was David. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, one of the neighbors, mm. a woman and her uh, teenager daughter, mm. who said that they saw a man, medium-sized man, mm. wearing a beanie, tipping, like uh, tipping on the window sills, and that they got to mm. see him, but yeah. couldn't recognize any features aside from this beanie or hat, or you could say that rolled up balaclava, mm. such as uh, David Wall? was very attached mm. to, and... This is interesting because this neighbor, this woman, she never accused David. She only mm. said what he had seen. Yeah. The locals formed essentially a lynch mob mm-hmm. um, and burst into Gray's flat, uh, his his cabin, and... Roughed him up. Roughed him up, tuned him up a bit. And... There are no details of what roughed him up was. Mm. And this mob... Uh, compound by men also uh, look around his crib and trying to find the missing knickers, mm-hmm. the missing panties, but none were found. Um, if he had some feeling about being paranoid, and he was right to be paranoid at some extent because he, you know, I, I had to make him responsible of this. He wasn't tr- even trying to be friendly or um, mm. trying to connect with anybody else. Mm. But there was really, I couldn't find any uh, detail uh, of yeah. the investigation that it was done on the peeping tone. Mm. But uh, Stuart Guthrie, mm. an officer that was later in the uh, was later in the event of the massacre, mm. was actually the one that went and interviewed David and did his own yeah. legitimized search mm. for evidence. And there is not full disclosure of. The investigation, but mm. there. Bet MGM is pitching baseball fans a chance to swing for the fences. Register using code Champion two hundred and win two hundred dollars in free bets when you place a ten dollar money line wager on any Major League Baseball game, and either team hits a home run, regardless of your bet's outcome. Enjoy baseball like never before with Bet MGM's daily promotions at your fingertips all season long. Download the app or go to betmgm.com and use code Champion two hundred to win two hundred dollars when you bet ten bucks on an. MLB game and either team hits a home run. Sign up today and find out why nothing beats a win at the King of Sportsbooks. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500 The future will be amazing, and that's all well and good. But what about today? You can feel the rush of a 400-horsepower Nissan Z. Or climb to new heights in the all-terrain Nissan Frontier. Light up the road in the all-electric Nissan Aria that feels like a sci-fi dream come true. The future will be great, but today is made for thrill. All you have to do is get in a Nissan and drive. 2023 Aria and Z not yet available for purchase. Expected availability is this spring for 2023 Z and this fall for 2023 Aria. There are no mentions of any fingerprints or DNA or any of the yeah. uh, scientifical procedure of yeah. investigation, and there were no other suspects, mm. and no one else was interviewed uh, as a suspect mm. about this Pippington incident. So there, there really wasn't any physical evidence to point 
David out. I I really believe he people only thought that he was a peeping tom because he was a weirdo, yeah, and an outcast. Yeah. And the neighbor that that saw the man, whoever it was, mm. in no way identified. In no way identified, yeah, and she yeah. and she actually went uh, went up to the creep to apologize after she knew that he had been bullied by the other men because she never intended that no, to happen. No. Not even she believed that it was David, and I don't think there's. Yeah, there's no. There certainly was no hard proof that it was a. And there's no. There's no, nothing in his background either that would suggest he he'd do that. that people are more likely willing to believe um, a witness recollection of a uh, sexual abuse or yeah. some sort of deviant behavior as this mm. when the accused is what you will call an weirdo or. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or an unhinged person, yeah. and in reality, you don't have to be a weirdo <laughs> to be to be a rapist. Now, what I'm trying to say is now when a, a person that is well recognized or has a good reputation among mm. a community, then all of a sudden people are less likely to believe the rape victims and the rape accusations. Mm. So. Mm. Just a very stereotyped idea of how a rapist or a pervert looks. It's mm-hmm. like always looking for the weirdo or the antisocial, and sometimes the perverts are antisocials and, mm-hmm. and weirdos in the more stereotypical way, mm-hmm. like a man with a greasy trench oh, coat. Trench coat. Yep. And sometimes they are, and sometimes the perverts are merry church-going men. That have a secret life yeah. as many of the most infamous serial killers mm. were white. What ones you think of? White middle class men that mm-hmm. have children and everybody liked. Yeah. So yeah, I don't feel it was fair to him. No, and, and if he was already being a paranoid, this really give him one. Uh, certainly that many people were willing to believe mm. he was yeah. a weirdo and a creep. Mm. So going to the events of... Uh... Okay, in uh, one of the other later events that occurred in 1990, in January, was at uh, Galaxy Books. Uh, David actually threatened one of the assistants who worked there by um, presenting a cardboard box which he intimated had a, you know, some sort of long barrel gun and threatened the assistant. Yeah, he had some uh, personal grievances with this uh, Kevin Fletcher, mm-hmm. was his name, the assistant. Bill Brosnan was uh, David Gray's friend. Yeah. Um, this, this, this Kevin actually would admit to pick on uh, David a little bit, mm-hmm. maybe call him names, and he had enough. Yep. On that January, and well, mm. uh, basically, mm. he didn't pull the gun. He would always uh, uh, carry it around the gun, but he put the gun in the cardboard on the front desk, yep. and actually, not very politely, invited the assistant to figure out her answers with a fist fight, mm. yep. which never happened. Uh, Constable Peter Murray went to David Gray's crib on that occasion because they called the police mm. and him. Bill did it and really kind of feels like Bill did it on David's best interest. But mm. um, Constable Peter Murray uh, didn't find any uh, fire gun, which mm. is very notable 
since we will know that David spent many years uh, making his own arsenal mm -hmm. for a fact. Yes. And on an occasion, also Bill Rosnan uh, saw him, saw David walking around Dunedin and thought about making a practical joke on him. So mm. you remember in the documentary mm. that mm. he went on the back of David and told him, hold there or stop it or whatever, mm. just yep. doing a practical joke. And without hesitation, David turned around very slowly and throw a punch at him. Mm maybe even realizing that he was his friend mm. or, or completely careless, uh, Bill would say that he got into fighter mode. Mm. David also had a very bad eyesight. Yes. He he had glasses and it looks like he was uh, his eyesight was bad enough to be able to have a benefit basically yeah, be, legally. Be, yeah. legally uh, almost blind. but Almost blind, but... Uh, Mm. Refused, refused to to have it. Refused to wear the glasses mm -hmm. because he he yeah. felt that they weren't uh, much enough. Yeah. Um, or yeah, that would be the but, word. Yeah, that's it. I mean, he like you said, his eyesight was bad enough that he was able to collect social security, you know, welfare, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like a on medical grounds. I mean, aside from the unemployment, but. Maybe his pride prevented mm. him to do it, so he had a chance mm. of improving his situation at some extent. Paul would also say that he was trying to mm. encourage him to get therapy, but of course David had to pay for that. and mm. I am sure it wasn't economic at all for him, but no. I feel like he had asked for help, would have gotten from some somebody yeah yeah i mean even you know i think during the 80s there wasn't you know it, it was uh, you know mental health was still you know kind of a taboo subject but there definitely were out outlets where you could seek help if you if you really felt um that you needed it bill brosnan also was trying to disencourage him mm. to buy the Soldier of Fortune magazine on the last year mm. of his life. Mm. So we got someone else uh, realized something was yeah. not quite all right with David. David had, a, as usual, another argument with Gary Holden a few days uh, before the Anamana massacre because well, Gray was, even though he was regarded to be an animal lover on the last years of his life, he mm. turned even hostile against animals, throwing rocks at neighbor's dog, mm. and he even killed his pet budgie, mm. Condor, whom he had trained to do tricks. Mm. He trained him to attack, quote-unquote. Mm -hmm. Um, because uh, he would say, David would say that the beard got on his nerves. Mm. And a few days before, um, had an argument with Holden. And Gary Holden sent, sent I think it was Chiquita, mm -hmm. with uh, some meal to David. Because yeah. he, was, he always looked malnourished. Mm. And he yelled at the child, tell her to go away. He didn't want anything and shut the door. Perhaps suffering from hallucinations mm. or delusions of some type aside from paranoia but it's hard um, to say because it's hard to say no diagnosis there's no on the morning of november 13 of 1990 
the day of the tragedy of Aramoana, Bert gives one of Aramoana residents mm -hmm. a song David around 7 a.m. Bert was driving his utility truck to Paul Charman's and Gray was cycling. Mm -hmm. He had a bike. He had inherited a car from his family but um, suffered an accident and he never had the money to mm -hmm. fix it, so it was just let to rotten. Mm -hmm. And Bert Gris offered him uh, a ride on on his truck. Mm. And David would say, no, it's a beautiful morning. I would love a good ride. Mm. I'll just ride. So do you know what he was doing at Dunedin that day? Yes, mm. that's right. That morning of the mm. massacre, David, David had made a trip into Dunedin to bank a check at uh, his local Uh, at his at the local branch of the bank, he he had always been. He'd always him. been with, and his family had always been with. And they had just started instituting a processing fee for checks, a two dollar processing fee. fee, which David took umbrage to, which led to a fairly loud outburst. Yeah. Um, to which he grabbed his check and stormed out. I guess the amount of money really didn't matter to him. Mm. It, uh, was... it was just the fact that he'd been loyal to a, mm -hmm. an institution. And felt yeah. like he was entitled mm. to some special treatment. Yep. Yeah, that perhaps was the straw that broke the camel's back. We'll, we'll never know. But No, I will never know, but mm. he, he was especially upset. And he was trying to get that check to actually buy more ammunition. He had been uh, communicating to several... Suppliers. Su suppliers, one in Oakland, and writing several very unhinged letters. Another common trope mm. that we, we can see in several mass murders and far-right uh, ideologists and that David Gray shares uh, was his love for guns and his hatred for state-enforced laws mm. that control mm. the acquisition of certain types of, of guns. At the time of the massacre, there had been a there was a an arms act that had been instituted in 1983, which uh, had introduced the concept of lifetime firearms licenses where conditions for holding a license were that you be over the age of 16 and considered and vetted lightly and to be considered a fit and proper person to own firearms. Um, once you had that license, there was absolutely no requirement to register any of the weapons that, you, uh, that the license holder uh, would own. And you could have as many uh, of them as you wish. And there was no limit to the amount of ammunition you could stockpile either. There were certain restrictions mm. on heavier weapons and pistols. But you could acquire a special license, endorsement, and an acquisition permit. So at the time, it was... The, the actual ownership of individual weapons was completely unregulated. And to this day because no records were ever kept it's it's quite difficult to pin down the number of firearms that are actually in circulation in New Zealand which would cause a problem all through New Zealand's uh, the years after the massacre where they conducted a 
investigation into the mending of the Firearms Act, and it was found that semi-automatic weapons of the military style, which the public was most concerned about, uh, and clamping down and registering weapons, was largely left untouched due to pressure and lobbying from the gun industry and sports shooters associations. Mm-hmm. So, effectively, none of the requirements, none of the amendments to the bill actually were ever passed, which included the amount of ammunition that one could own and the type of ammunition owned and the type of weapons owned, whether it was semi-automatic military-style weapons or others. Um, and also the the main reason given why a total ban on these on mm-hmm. the types of uh, semi-automatic military-style weapons was that the compensation to enable a buyback scheme was going to be too expensive for the government um, on top of the opposition from the gun rights groups. New laws that were enacted, though, were that you would require a firearms licence to actually purchase ammunition and that a lifetime licence could be revoked if someone had committed a serious offence and that the lifetime licences were reduced from a lifetime to 10 years where you'd have to go and re get you know, get reassessed um also a, a stricter clamp on mail orders and mail ordering weapons and ammunition was enacted and also the requirement for stricter storage of of weapons and ammunition yeah it's it's said that around 1992 even after this uh, initial amendment act that only four percent of firearms in New Zealand were registered. So that's mm. that's a lot of firearms that are completely yeah. completely unknown uh, and off the off the scope enforcement agents. Maybe he wasn't having any of those restrictions. No. For sure. In his last years he was also trying to make a living out of being a freelance writer since all the stuff that he was writing were uh, notes and yeah, like editorials to, well, guns and ammunition and survival uh, type of magazines. Mm-hmm. He had written an article called Hardline Survival Tactics, and the first very long sentence mm-hmm. uh, of this article was, quote, If you, like many, are becoming concerned with worldwide climate changes, racing crime, inflation, recession, and depression on a worse scale than eventuated in the 1930s that our parents lived through at such cost. And if you are realistic enough to understand and realize the problems facing us are too big and too expensive for any government to handle, then you must prepare. Aside from the articles he was writing, one of these letters that Gray was intended to send, Soldier of Fortune, or one of his military and weaponry magazine, mentions uh, two mass murders. One is the Hungerford Massacre, a pre-shooting it happened in Hungerford, England, perpetrated by Michael Ryan, and the other one was the Bottle Street Massacre, whom the responsible was Julian Knight, mm. in Australia, in Melbourne. Killers with different motivations, the hunger for massacre was a man who had been expelled from his uh, teaching position because he had been sexually abusing children and after being unemployed for many years, 
performed a killing spree in a school, to be precise, and also murdered his mother. And Julian Knight uh, was also a far-right enthusiast, if you wish. He shot dead seven people and injured 19 during his spree. And this is curious because David Gray mentions these two killers, but a point that he's trying to make in his letter is that after these different uh, mass shootings, mm. like a, a consequence or of, of those mass shootings were that in both in uh, England and uh, Australia uh, started to toughen up uh, their laws about uh, gun ownership. David wasn't having mm. that either. So it's how I find it how curious that you take these two killers to make your point mm. about people having more guns. Mm. Um, David Gray being a mass killer himself is very... Yeah. I wouldn't say it's even funny. It's, mm. I don't know. I was also going to say that, you know, in the uh, breakdown of Ryan's life, who was responsible for the Hungerford massacre, oh. um, it was also noted that he had a very obsessive fascination with firearms and videos and, you know, war culture and was also obsessed with survival skills, firearms, magazines, which, and it's noted that he was a fairly avid reader of soldier of fortune as well. Once again, (laughs) what are the odds? The day of the Aramana massacre, a couple of hours before the events begin, David Gray scribbled a very weird, peculiar note that Mm. says, editorial, A. The general public is an ass high on drugs, legal antidepressants such as valium, alcohol, sleeping pills, 100,000 taken per night, alcoholics, 55,000 in a population of 3.3 million. They have as much right to decide anything as Genghis Khan barbaric courts did. B. Liberty and freedom cannot be compromised. You either have full democracy or none. There is no repeat, no halfway between them. Only the slow slide to dictatorship. Well, you know, but that's that very, you know, that's that that's that quite extreme libertarian viewpoint yeah. of, yeah. you know, I should be able to do what I want whenever I want. And, um, you know. Almost you, like a sovereign citizen. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think that's, you know, the the... The prepper mindset, the survivalist mindset, tends to cross over with that sort of libertarian ideals of mm-hmm. self-sufficiency, and part of that is owning a lot of guns to protect what's yours. Or and, invisible enemies, or yeah. the foreign enemy. Mm-hmm. That's it. So, you know, leading up to the massacre, you know, probably over a period of years, he you know, had gone from boy's own adventure in Soldier of Fortune to past the, the Ayn Rand stage of libertarianism and then leading on to the, you know, the hardcore survivalist stockpiling of weapons to, you know, again, use against. But this is all led up to this one particular day. On the afternoon, David Ray was already back at Aramuana and at 7.30 he confronted his neighbour, mm-hmm. Gary Holden, the details are unknown of what he was arguing. We do know is that a grade went back into his crib. He retrieved a Norinco semi-automatic rifle, walked outside and shot Holden multiple times in the chest before walking over him and, f- and shot him fatally through the head. 
Nearby, witnessing everything for their disgrace, were Holden's two daughters, Chiquita and Jasmine, and his girlfriend, Julian Rison's adopted daughter, mm. Riva. The girls promptly ran into Holden's house to hide from Gray as he walked into their property. He found Chiquita and shot her in the chest and the arm, resulting in a bullet lodging into her stomach. Somehow, Chiquita managed to run for her life, Unfortunately, Jasmine and Riva were hiding in the house living room and mm. they were soon found and shot dead by David Gray. Chiquita fled past her father's body to the Rison's nearby house, which was a couple of blocks away, while Gray set the Holden house on fire, managed to get to Julianne's house while mm. screaming, David's gone mad, he shot me and he killed dad. Julianne Bryson uh, took her van and took Chiquita, drove, actually, to Colden's house. The house by that stage was already on fire. When she got near it, uh, David started shooting indiscriminately mm-hmm. at the car and hit it several times, at which point... Um, Julianne Julie, kept driving. Yep, yeah, she, she um, kept on driving and I think, you know, absolutely guttingly must have realised that by that stage... There her, was nothing she could do. Yeah, there's do. nothing she could do. And her daughter and, and her partner's daughter were more than likely dead or mm-hmm. hopefully by some miracle they were still alive that they would have legged it and uh, yeah. would be hiding in the bush somewhere. Until modern days, uh, Julianne Bryson feels guilt for not stopping at the house even though it was set ablaze and David Gray himself was with a rifle shooting at mm. her and just by pure chance uh, didn't get shot. Mm. But well, she... Bet MGM is pitching baseball fans a chance to swing for the fences. Register using code CHAMPION200 and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 money line wager on any Major League Baseball game and either team hits a home run, regardless of your bet's outcome. Enjoy baseball like never before with Bet MGM's daily promotions at your fingertips all season long. Download the app or go to betmgm.com and use code CHAMPION200 to win $200 when you bet $10 on an MGM. MLB game and either team hits a home run. Sign up today and find out why nothing beats a win at the King of Sportsbooks. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500 it's the jc penny mother's day sale shop now and save on gifts mom will love brighten her day with jewelry up to 70 percent off with coupon find something special at our store-wide liz event with savings up to 40 percent off plus extended store hours friday and saturday this mother's day make her day truly monumental shopping is back jc penny offers valid on select items through 5-8 liz event offer good through 5-16 some exclusions apply see store or jcp.com for details they both uh, run away mm. uh, in the car. At this point, uh, Grace started shooting indiscriminately, mm-hmm. targeting a utility vehicle full of locals who had seen the Holden house on fire yeah. and were trying to help. He first shot Vanessa Percy several times in the back as she ran down the street in terror, whom uh, unfortunately passed away a few hours later in the scene. David then turned towards three children 
shot dead two of them, Leo Wilson and Dion Percy, who were hiding in the back of the truck and were the boys that Chiquita had seen before. Yeah. The boy's sister, Stacy, was uh, critically injured and she stayed uh, frozen in terror with the uh, siblings until the police could reach to Ross Percy, the children's father, was as well fatally shot in the head. The next one, Aleki Tali, was another neighbor. Aleki Tali was also shot dead. Gray then entered the home of Tim Jamison, an old uh, man who had uh, an issue with uh, drinking, was mm-hmm. regarded as a good man as long as he was sober, but when he wasn't sober, he would scream abuse at uh, basically everybody, and well, mm-hmm. Gray wasn't an exception, but yet he was, was shot dead. The next victim was Jane Dixon, who was looking for his dog. Mm-hmm. Eva Helen Dixon, James' mother, and his neighbor, Chris Cole, went into the road to see what the commotion was. Gray shot both of them, wounding Cole, who was in a phone booth calling the police and forcing Mrs. Dixon to die for a cover. Mrs. Dixon, who had recently had a hip replacement and mm. was unable to walk without assistance, pulled herself along on her stomach and fell into a ditch to get inside and call 111, the mm. emergency phone number. Yeah, an absolute trooper. She crawled to her house mm. along a ditch, then made the call, then went back to check on her uh, her neighbour. Yeah, crawled all the way back again. Mm-hmm. And then uh, once uh, her neighbour had sort of um, said, look, you should get inside and, mm-hmm. um, and check where the... Uh, Check where the emergency services are. She crawled back again. So she yeah, showed incredible, not just incredible bravery, but just absolutely amazing resilience and determination after a hip replacement. Her neighbor called, unfortunately, that passed out um, mm. for his injuries. And then we got the first uh, armed police officer to arrive to the scene, who mm-hmm. was the Sergeant Stuart Guthrie. Officer in charge of Paul Charmer's police station, non-commissioned officer in the armed offenders squad because officially policemen in New Zealand don't carry guns mm-hmm. as a common feature of themselves. Well, in that time, in the 90s and nowadays. Mm-hmm. Stuart, who knew David personally, came armed with a Smith & Wetson Model 10 police revolver and he enlisted to help of Constable Russell Anderson, who had arrived a short time earlier with the fire service. Mm. He armed himself with a rifle belonging to a resident, Constable Russell. With Dagnar's approaching, because it was getting late, mm. uh, Guthrie tried to, well, actually approach to uh, Gray's uh, crib. Guthrie observed Grave and relay his movements inside the house. They, they had been watching him for a while. They knew he was armed, obviously. Anderson spot Gray coming out of the front of the property, tried to stop him. Gray Basically retreated. called him and issued mm-hmm. the, the, order to the stop. orders to, to cease and desist, to stop and put his weapons away, throw down his weapons. Taking cover in the sand dunes of a neighboring creek, Guthrie encountered David Gray coming out of the mm-hmm. darkness. Generally on him, he fired a warning shot and Gray shouted, don't shoot, leading Guthrie to believe he was surrendered. Uh, there's actually the record of the police mm. calling with Stephen Guthrie calls out to David Gray and mm-hmm. tell him, stop it, David, or I will shoot, showing that they were 
they knew each other. Mm. Unfortunately, Gray fired several times and one shot striking Stu Guthrie in the head, killing him instantly. Mm. Minutes later, the Dunedin branch of the AOS, Armed Offender Squad, began to arrive and seal off the township with a roadblock. Uh, also units from uh, yeah, the arm offenders unit from Christchurch in Maro and Invercargill were called in support. Mm. And it was very considerable, it's a, it was a very uh, dangerous situation because by this time they realized not only he had one gun, he had several guns, mm. including a scooped rifle, which made uh, David potentially accurate at long range. Mm. I mean, aside from several 22s, uh, 22 caliber rifles, which obviously still, you know, lethal, are a lot less powerful than a lot of other, a lot of other guns. Um, however, he did have a rifle that was particularly powerful, which was the, yeah, uh, the, the weapon which was, that he did have, which was quite uh, An AK-47 powerful. type. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a... It's a uh, variant of the uh, yeah. I would say imitation, but it's a it's a Chinese derivation of the AK forty seven. So it was a military rifle, which potentially can be a submachine gun, but because of the gun laws in uh, New Zealand, it was modified to be a uh, semi-automatic only. However, that being said, the 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 caliber of this weapon and, and the power is you know, military grade, mm-hmm. so it's, uh, yeah, absolutely terrifyingly lethal. And that was scoped. So to have to, the potential of David Gray looking down the scopes at the uh, the armed defenders squad would have been absolutely terrifying, you know, nerve-wracking. Yeah, and I lost a little detail, which very significant. In between, he shot Gary Holden and shot the children and then started mm-hmm. this spree, properly speaking. Uh, David Harcourt went back inside his crib and applied some... Some camo paint. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he, yeah, by that stage, had go had gone... Full on Rambo mode, mm-hmm. if you wish. Yep. Except that John Rambo didn't kill children or civilians. At no. In fact, I don't think he technically killed anyone in that movie, but that's, that's in its side. Well, there is actually proof that he had been uh, uh, using targets for a while and drawing, uh, making disturbing mm. drawings of people being murdered and shot. Yet, hard to say whether this was... Uh, I, w- I wouldn't say that this spree was planned, but the fantasies of revenge and mm. retaliation had been harvesting in his mind for a while. Yeah. Commissioner of Police, John Jamison, authorized the anti-terrorist squad, the specialist counter-terrorist unit, to travel to Dunedin and locate Gray. And group members were in Christchurch, Wellington and Auckland, who had to take a morning business flight because they couldn't get the Air Force yep. to transport them, which seems a bit odd. Maybe country that is unprepared for this. For that. Time. Or there may have been certain legal... Mm-hmm. Issues yeah. with uh, yeah, armed forces giving um, police use of their vehicles. As you, ma- as you imagine, why the residents were fleeing Aramoana as fast as possible, then a large number of reporters 
met the flight on arrival at Dunedin, also with some of the special uh, terrorist squad. Mm. The anti-terrorist squad members took a reconnaissance, a reconnaissance flight, reconnaissance flight mm-hmm. over the township in an Iraqis helicopter. The helicopter initially flew high as it had no armor for small arms fire. Look mm-hmm. at that, I didn't know that. And Great had shot at a private news helicopter earlier than yeah. that morning. In this case, it was the crew of the Air Force who were in the Iroquois uh, helicopter, so the, which it was carrying armed police, and they were, they were doing a, a reconnaissance flying over areas that they believed Grey might be in, essentially narrowing down the, yeah. the field, and they were dropping... Uh, tear gas grenades as they went along in you know in the hope that it would flush him out if he was hiding in certain areas yep they did this for over eight hours and they had the order to shoot to kill if he had a fireman firearm in the meantime a gray had entered a small crib uh, a different crib in aramoana Mm -hmm. had eaten a meal and actually had gone to sleep Mm. for the night Mm. Uh, some christchurch members of the anti terrorist squad moved into Aramoana at about 6 a.m. of 14 of November. Mm-hmm. The ATS went first to Grace House, passing the bodies on the ground. Mm-hmm. And after clearing neighbor houses, they put a stun grenade into Grace Creek, blowing out the windows, followed by tear gas. Mm-hmm. I mean, from there, they basically did a, a fairly systematic, you know, from there, they did a, a fairly systematic clearing of the uh, you know the neighbors' houses and the subsequent houses, you know, just clearing the street as they went along until they made their way. They also found Mrs. Dickinson hiding, mm-hmm. who had been hiding for a, a long time, good uh, twenty night. hours, mm-hmm. um, terrified. And after almost a full day of checking out the crib, this was less than twenty-four hours. It was mm-hmm. twenty-two hours. Mm-hmm. The ATS checked a crib with a broken window on the northeastern side of. The grave had large hedges on both sides, and the group spot Gray briefly at a window, and a shooting battle ensued. Police put a stun grenade through a window, but it bounced it off a mattress that Gray had placed as a barricade and landed near the police. Unfortunate. Mm. Afterwards, the police fired tear gas into the grave, and Gray began shooting, not at the police, but through the shed, mm-hmm. precisely. Yep. It was just... Shooting indiscriminately because, mm-hmm. yeah, he was choking and, and was blinded. Yeah, and also he he never had a good eyesight in the well, first place. Well, no, day. that's true. But if he's just shooting through the wall, I think mm-hmm. it's, you know, he realises it's sort of a, a, a last stand. In the meantime, the Air Force Iroquois, the mm-hmm. helicopter, was also flying above the crib to make sure, ensure that Grey wouldn't escape. Mm-hmm. Or if, the, if he did escape, they'd be able to track him. Hopefully, fairly easily. So that you know, definitely, he was he was he was penned in. Mm-hmm. And um... around five fifty p.m., Gray uh, David Gray ran out of the house. He had washed off his camo painting from his face, mm-hmm. and while shooting from the hip and shouting, "Kill me, fucking kill me, you bastards!" to mm-hmm. the police and the ATS. He took several steps before being hit and knocked up by the ATS gunfire. He was shot five times in the eye, neck, chest, and twice in the groin. He was put on a plastic handcuff, and he struggled fiercely against the police, and he actually had to be recuffed yeah. 
twice while berating the police for not having killed him. Ambulance officers treated him and the scene on the way to the Dunedin hospital by providing him oxygen. But at 6.10 p.m., David Gray died from his wounds mm. on the way to the hospital. Yeah. Once the perpetrator was put down, the police got a, a proper search, and we finally get to know what was the... The arsenal of the weapons. The arsenal. Yeah. He had. What did he have? Well, he had his twenty-two caliber Winchester rifle fitted with a suppressor. He had the uh, Norinco SKS semi-automatic rifle, which is the... Uh, the AK-47 uh, derivative. He had a 22 caliber Squires and Bingham Model 16. He had a 22 caliber Squires and Bingham Model 16. He had a Squires and Bingham Model 16, which is similar in appearance to a uh, M16, like the uh, the American military assault rifles. He also had an air rifle. He had hundreds of rounds of 22 ammunition and approximately 100 rounds of .223 ammunition, which is, yeah, a fairly large arsenal for a man living alone in a, you know, in a holiday shack. It's kind of a mystery where he was hiding in camps because he had been searched for the Bibbington incident mm. and <clears throat> for the, the argument he had with the assistant of galaxy books but these guns were never found and no one ever saw him really using the guns or uh, trying shooting mm. seems like there is uh, a very hidden space in the Aramona beach the mm. it's a very isolated point which an acquaintance showed him once and uh, appears to be the place where he was practicing his shooting mm. he also had dark target outlines yep what else was found in his house was this peculiar artwork that he had artwork been... that he had made or that he called peace. But what what do we see? We see. A, Would you like to describe it to the listeners? We see a profile of half of, of Hitler's face, covered by a, a a banner of a swastika, a big swastika, a big swastika, and then. On the left side, and on the right side, we have um... several several guns being held by police officers or, or Nazi stormtroopers, with uh, you know graves um, standing over graves of unmarked soldiers, and then to the right, right uh, yeah, of I would say a demonstration mm, of peace-loving people being held back by the. Uh, Stormtroopers. And a giant hand making the very well-known peace sign. Mm. And on the inferior left side of the picture, there is a human-like picture that has a halo on its head. And it's in a position with the arms spread open, sort of a Mm. crucified-like. And on the documentary we were watching, Mm. which is one of the resources that... I'm going to let for anybody that is interested. Mm. It says that this is how David Gray sees himself. Mm. I don't know where they got that interpretation because I didn't read it in the book, but it could be. And if that's the way he saw himself as a crucified... um, Yeah, a martyr. A martyr. Mm. Um, Which, again, isn't 
is is not uncommon amongst um, mm-hmm. uh, extremists and and um, you know not necessarily lone well definitely lone wolf uh, you know, mm-hmm. domestic terrorists as, as as they say but um, yeah definitely a a common sort of uh, self self opinion yeah, that a lot of themselves. yeah that a lot of extremists hold that they're on some sort of holy righteous you know crusade or mm-hmm. quest um, you know they're willing to lay down their lives for their ideals and that somehow elevates them and justifies Whatever the horrible things that they might have to do. Three days after Aramona massacre happened, the residents of the township decided to, in a mm. symbolic act of cleansing, to do what? To torch David Gray's house. The house of the Norse god of war. So, yeah, the, the townsfolk of Aramoana gathered together and threw a match into the house and watched what collectively together and collectively watched the house of the person who had absolutely decimated the community burn to the ground. You know that two days before the massacre, mm. uh, Gary Holden had a chat with uh, David Gray and David confessed that he was thinking about taking his own life. Mm. And Gary, being a, a counsellor, he told him out of committing suicide at, the moment, mm. at, at that moment. We ended up with well, David committing what is called... Also by, by police. He wanted to go down as, in his own mind as, as a martyr um, and, you know, die in the blaze of glory. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, another heavy, heavy topic, but uh, nonetheless, you know, a key piece of New Zealand's history. Out of respect for the people who died at Aramoana, I'll read the names of the people who passed there. Riwa Ariki. Bryson, aged 11. Simon Christopher Cole, aged 62. Victor James Crimp, aged 71. James Alexander Dixon, aged 45. Sergeant Stuart Graham Guthrie, aged 41. Gary John Holden, aged 38. Jasmine Amber Holden, 11. Magnus Jameson, aged 69. Ross Jeremy Percy, aged 42. Vanessa Grace Percy, aged 26. Dion Raymond Jack Percy, 6. Aliki Tali, aged 41. Leo Wilson, aged 6. Once again, you can find us on our social pages, which are... Instagram, a history of evil men. Twitter... Facebook. We also have a Facebook group in which I will upload all our sources. And we have a Patreon account as well if you want to spare a dollar, which is uh, patreon.com slash a history of filmman. You can listen to us in most uh, streaming services, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, and... Thanks for listening. Thank you. As always, we'll leave you with the wondrous sounds of Steph Animal. Thank you to her for providing the music for our intro and outro. And once again, thank you all for listening.